Welcome to New Books in Journalism, where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm Dave Schwartz, from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from George Brock, professor at City University London. His new book is Out of Print, Newspapers, Journalism, and the Business of News in the Digital Age. George, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So before we get too much into out of print, give us a little bit about your background and how you, how you got to where you are now. Well, I've been in charge of the journalism school at City University of London for the past four years. Uh, we like to call it the uh, best journalism school in Britain. Um, others might contest for the title, but it's pretty well known and it's got a pretty high reputation. And I say that because I didn't create it. I just inherited it. Before that, I was a newspaper journalist. For more than 30 years, I spent the bulk of my career on the daily paper, The Times of London, and I worked for a Sunday paper, The Observer, before that, and a local paper briefly uh, before that. I wrote a lot of things to do with Northern Ireland, uh, what we would call sort of crime and justice issues. Uh, when I was a reporter, I was an editor for a long time. I was an editor of the opinion page at The Times. I was the foreign editor and the managing editor. So uh, journalism with words is what I've done. So the book is out of print, Newspapers, Journalism, and the Business of News in the Digital Age. There are a considerable number of books, uh, things like Rebuilding the News and Wired City, that are looking at how the news business is changing. But this one reads different. So as you were beginning the project of this book, what was your intent and what sort of things within the news business were you looking at? I really began the book with a strong... Uh, feeling and, if you like, a hypothesis, which I wanted to work out. If you are the head of a journalism school, I think almost anywhere, you spend a lot of time in discussions and conferences and seminars about the future of journalism. And in the past few years, most of these discussions have been very gloomy and very pessimistic. Now, they take that tone with some reason. There are jobs in journalism disappearing. I'm constantly being asked whether the students in my school are uh, being, you know, whether we are training them for unemployment and that kind of what kind of jobs are they going to get and are there enough jobs for them and so on. But as I went through these discussions, the conviction gradually grew on me that most of this pessimism was wrong. And it was wrong for two major reasons. One, because it was completely ahistorical, it completely ignored the development of journalism across history, particularly in the United States and in Europe. And secondly, because journalists in established mainstream media organizations were confusing journalism with established journalism institutions and failing to see that innovation and change were going on. They just weren't going on uh, where they were looking for it. And there is far more generative energy or generative drive in journalism than many experienced journalists with a lot of miles on the clock seem to think. So I wanted to work out whether that instinct of mine, that this prevailing pessimism was wrong, uh, was right. So I went out and tried to look at the history and I tried to look at what's now going on. And um, that was where the optimism of out of print comes from. You, you said so much of what has been done so far was ahistorical. And, that, and that's what really struck me about this book. You know, there are the chapters on, you know, on the UK and early New York and Horace Greeley and then the Gilded Age. You know, you've seen some books or papers in, in which 
the history is summed up in a, in a paragraph or maybe a few paragraphs. Um, uh, you know, it'll throw William Lloyd Garrison out there and then they'll just move on to the internet. Um, let's, I'd like to talk about this idea a little bit about the, the history that you put into this book. What did you maybe teach yourself uh, in doing your research? And what do you hope that those who consume this book get from those early chapters about how journalism formed during the, uh, maybe perhaps during the 19th and early 20th century? The key thing that I want people to take away from the historical, the three first historical chapters in the book is that progress in journalism is not what you might like to call a sort of straight upward golden line. A lot of journalism history is written as if everything has been progressing to the present day and all the developments have been good and it's all been in a straight line. Everybody has always been agreed about what excellence in journalism is, what journalism should be for, and how it should be conducted. You don't really have to look at much journalism history to discover that that is complete nonsense. Journalism exists at the junction between uh, market forces, or the economy, if you like, because most journalism wants to operate uh, in, the, in, the, in the free economy. It wants to operate as an independent source of news and information. The junction of that and what you might call a social or democratic purpose, which is that a free society should be properly and independently informed. That place, that junction of those two forces, renders journalism perpetually unstable. Not only unstable, constantly being renegotiated, reorganized when either society or technology or economics or just plain fashion or politics change what's going on. People change their definition of what journalism is for, how it should be done. I mean, just to take one tiny example, you know, it's widely believed and um, uh, very strongly in the States and and elsewhere that uh, journalism should be conducted on an ideal that journalists should be uh, impartial and fair. Nothing wrong with those ideas at all. But... that really only took hold, that idea, with, with any kind of strength at the beginning of the 20, about a century ago. Everything before that, and that's t- at least two centuries of journalism in Britain, had been um, opinionated. And when I say opinionated, I mean really opinionated. Um, and not just opinionated in the editorial columns or the columns in, 19, you know, in the early 19th century in Britain. Nobody would have recognized the concept of a columnist as somebody who had opinions and a reporter as somebody who reported the facts. Everybody just gave their opinions. It's what journalists did. And so opinion has a longer history, actually, than impartial reporting. I think that journalism is always now going to be marked by the 20th century uh, tradition and, and the strength of the idea of and the importance of impartial reporting. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the 19th century completely. But so, I just give that as an illustration of how big a change of ideas can go on in what is supposedly, you know, a perfect progress to the ideal present day. For our our listeners who have not seen it, uh, you write, I'm just going to read very briefly, you define journalism as the systematic independent attempt to establish the truth of events and issues that matter to a society in a timely way. And there's that word again, truth, that you just, you know, explained that, you know, truth doesn't really, you know, it means different things to different people. 
So how do you how did you approach this definition? How did you arrive at this definition of journalism for this project? Well, the, that definition of journalism, I've 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 hammered out over some time. I had a long career as I as I said earlier as a newspaper journalist, so I'd had I'd had quite a lot of time to think about these things. And uh, for my inaugural lecture at City University London, I uh, I, I chose the title. Um, uh, uh, what is no? What is um, what has happened to news, uh, or, or does news still exist? I think actually was my title, and I realised that I couldn't really talk about news until I, unless I gave a definition of journalism. One of the points that I argue in the book is that journalists have got to be absolutely clear in a in an information saturated world in which vast amounts of information are now flowing around, person to person, institutions to people through new ways, from new sources. Journalism is not the whole of media and it's not all of information. And therefore, journalists have got to be absolutely crystal clear about what it is that they are actually doing. Where does the value that they provide lie? And while I don't insist that everybody necessarily shares my definition, I put the definition up partly to say to people, that's my definition. You may possibly want to have a different one, but it is very important that journalists don't take this stuff for granted and have a basic philosophy about why they're doing what they're doing. After all, nowadays, journalists are not defined by the organizations they work in uh, or, or any kind of uh, professional association. Anybody can claim to be a journalist. And there's a lot of confusion about who should be treated as a journalist. Um, but journalists have really got to define what it is they do and where they add value with more precision than they've been used to doing in the past. There's this wonderful scene right at the book's open in which the editor and the editor in chief of the Daily Mail is giving a speech, and he's not comfortable because he doesn't give a lot of speeches. Uh, just share with us what what that exactly that scene is and why you chose to open with it, but also um, what he was trying to convey in his speech. We've had an enormous convulsion in popular newspapers here in Britain, generally known as the phone hacking scandal, in which quite a number of people have now been arrested by the police for intercepting voicemails, uh, bribing public servants to give information, and the hacking of computers. It's now turned into a very large police inquiry. It's been going on for several years and it began, or early on in the scandal, was uh, one of the most famous Sunday newspapers, the News of the World, um, a very raunchy, uh, some, sometimes investigative tabloid, got shut down. The scandal got so bad, and it's done a lot of damage to uh, News Corporation Rupert Murdoch's publishing company. That was the convulsion. In Britain, there was a public inquiry arising out of this scandal, and the scene that I describe right at the beginning of the book is from one of the seminars that were held just before the formal opening of the inquiry. And one of these seminars was addressed by a man called Paul Dacre, who is the editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail, by, by many people's reckoning, would be the most successful newspaper survivor in a squeezed sector. It's what we would call a mid-market paper. It's not right down in the most popular level, but it's certainly not up the most serious level either. It sits kind of halfway between the two. And its website, uh, which is almost exclusively concentrated on uh, celebrity news, has been a huge international hit. It's one of the most popular websites on the planet. And 
Dacre really made two striking admissions uh, while at the same time making a very apparently defiant and aggressive speech. And it was this odd combination between the concessions he was making and the defiant tone that made it for me rather an emblematic scene and worth putting at, worth putting at the front of the book. He said, Decker said that undoubtedly some popular paper reporting in Britain had got out of control and needed to be controlled, and he made some suggestions about how it should be done. And he also said, if you don't help newspapers by cutting them some slack, the internet's going to kill us. Now, I'd never heard, and I don't think anybody else had either, a popular paper of that amount of power and clout and circulation ever really admit that the internet was on his tail in the way that it is. Many people had come to that conclusion, but an awful lot of people in the established newspapers, because their circulations were only falling at a certain gradual rate, were in a bit of denial about what digital competition was doing to them. So I thought it summed up the situation rather well. And I thought it tied in really well to the later chapter. I think it was, I don't know, it was one called Engine of Opportunity, um, mm-hmm. which was, you know, when the internet sort of really started to come up, I, I was a journalist. I spent 10 years in Chicago um, as a journalist. And of course you were a journalist, but now, no, the internet now is taking off. And, you know, in terms of technology that you mentioned, the other four, there was, you know, the, the telegraph and radio and television. And uh, I'm forgetting one, but they had these profound impacts but but you could see them spread out over time. The internet hit, and in the amount of time that it's taken over, or has has not taken over—that was the wrong term—but has has you know climbed. Um, it's been it's a, been a really compact time frame. It has been a very compact time frame, but you must remember that although it's been compact to some extent, its effect has been quite delayed. I spent a lot of time back in the 1990s debating with people how much the internet was going to change newspapers. I mean, virtually every opinion I think I uttered in that era turned out to be wrong, I might add. But what happened was, although the internet began appearing in our lives in the early 1990s, it wasn't really until it isn't really until a society has broadband access somewhere around 60% of households that you really get the process of newspapers being squeezed and crushed by this force and people getting a lot more information. It has to reach a kind of critical mass, broadband access, for the pressure and the downward slide of newspapers to accelerate. And actually that in Britain only happened just in the last kind of six or seven years. So there was a pause. It wasn't a very long one, but there was a pause. And yet you're also very careful to point out that, that print is not dead. It's definitely not dead. Uh, firstly, magazines, uh, the, their fortunes vary, but some magazines are doing it. Some particularly highly specialized magazines do very well. I don't expect books to disappear, although book publishers are uh, under pressure. My book may be called out of print, but you can get it in hard copy as well as you can get it, get it as an e-book. And uh, print is certainly not going to disappear. What is, what is under pressure is not print. What is under pressure is the business model supported by advertising of general interest daily newspapers. So that's a much smaller category of people who are under under these crushing pressures. And you bring up this point of, of comparison and choice. And I've been the question I was quite honestly most interested in asking was, 
is choice in what people can consume, is choice always necessarily good? No, there are situations in which choice is not necessarily good. But in terms of news, what has happened to people's choice because of what they can see on the Internet is a radical extension of choice. I think the key point that I'm trying to make in that passage of the book is that people can make comparisons between news sources, which they were never able to do before. Until 20 years ago, you basic people had, for example, a habit of reading a newspaper. They read the same newspaper for very long periods of time, maybe whole lifetimes. And, it, and they probably just read one newspaper, listened to one radio program, and perhaps one regular daily TV program, and some people less than that. What the internet did was allow people to see lots and lots of news sources, not necessarily only in their own society, in their own culture, or their own language, simultaneously, or more or less simultaneously, within a matter of seconds. Now, that comparison of what was going on would, would just about have been possible in the previous age, but it would have been very expensive and very time-consuming. Really, only professional journalists did it in newsrooms. You would have lots and lots of newspapers, and you would be comparing things. As soon as people started to see that comparison, their way of selecting and using and switching between the news began to change. So that's a very, very radical extension of choice. And, I mean, frankly, whether it's good or bad doesn't seem to me the main question. The fact is it's there and it isn't going to be reversed and the news business is going to have to deal with consequences. It- and this, I do want to ask you one question that maybe wasn't quite addressed in the book, but as a natural follow-up to that, the, the issue of, of dealing with the public itself. Um, and you, you, know, you run a very prestigious journalism school. How do we go about, or can we even go about, educating the public to this new access that they have to news? I'm not sure, really, that the, that the public need much educating in access to news. They seem to be absolutely relishing it and uh, changing their habits quite rapidly enough. Um, What I think is more important is that uh, the news business starts to adapt what it does in order to make sure that it is following what people regard as valuable. I I mean, you can take a whole number of examples, and there's loads of examples in the book, but let me just, let me take this one. Sure. One very common pattern of the past has been for people to grab a new audience by um, popular or frivolous or even perhaps you might call it trashy methods. And having done that, having got that audience, then to say, okay, on top of this great entertaining content that we're giving them and people like and they come for again and again, on top of that, We're going to give them some stuff that they might not necessarily choose to want, but actually they're going to like when we give it to them. And anyway, whether or not they like it, it's really important. And I write, uh, because it's been in the news quite, it happens to have been in the news quite a lot, but I write in the book about the New York-based site called BuzzFeed. Now, BuzzFeed began as a site really for bored people at work to swap silly videos of skateboarding cats and cute dogs. But that site which has been phenomenally effective commercially and has huge numbers of people going to it, is now hiring business reporters, foreign correspondents, 
and investigative reporters. Foreign correspondents and investigative reporters are about the two most expensive tribes you can find in any in any newsroom. And in doing this, BuzzFeed is ha- is following one of the patterns of the past. Sometimes things start serious and go on serious. Sometimes things start less serious and become more serious as they go on. You have the name Pulitzer, which is very famous in the United States, named after Joseph Pulitzer, and you have the prestigious prizes nowadays. Well, Joseph Pulitzer was, um, in his day, originally when he was a newspaper man, what we would now call a tabloid journalist. Right. Um, he was raunchy, noisy, possibly not always totally honest, um, and doing things which would, cons- I think, quite shock quite a lot of people nowadays. Yet, you know, he went on to do much more serious stuff and ultimately gave his name to a series of prestigious prizes about quality journalism. So that process of kind of scaling upwards happens a lot in history. It's very classic in the pattern of disruptors, in business disruptors. And uh, that, that's, that's where journalism is adapting, working better on what's valuable to people and getting the journalistic mix more effective in the way that it will get the content and news and what people need to know in the right place at the right time. Let's stay on this idea of, of business models as, as you address them in the book, Out of Print, in, in which you write, the current and going forward, the future climate of professional journalism, there will be the pre-existing media who adapt, and there will be the new media who join them. The ones who are adapting, what kinds of tactics are they taking to be able to adapt and still be able to produce news successfully? Well, Some of it is rather grim. I mean, established media with very big, very expensive newsrooms, massive um, printing plants they own or contract, may have to manage, at least for the time being, with fewer people working for them, and that includes fewer journalists. Some very big newsrooms are going to have to shrink because the amount of revenue they can make, both from conventional print operations and from developing digital operations is not going to add up to enough to keep going the very large machinery that you've got. I mean, an absolutely classic example on your side of the Atlantic is the New York Times. Very distinguished paper, very splendid journalism, but, you know, a massive newsroom, a huge business, very big overheads. The business is actually, the New York Times, I mean, is actually making quite a lot of money from digital journalism. But it isn't making enough money from digital journalism to put back all the print advertising that has leaked out of it over the last 15 years. So net is probably going, at least for the time being, to have to be a smaller operation. So that's one of the adaptations that's going on, uh, and and that's a kind of shrinking one. The thing that I think businesses have often failed to see or been very slow to see is the importance of being disciplined about how you experiment. It's very, very common in news media businesses. Somebody says, let's start a new section of the paper or the magazine on you know, high tech or something. And uh, somebody makes a dummy, they rehearse it, uh, it's, maybe it's put out to research, uh, then a marketing campaign is de- developed around it, off it goes. But that is how you put out new stuff in an absolutely mature market that you know and you understand. The digital market is very, very difficult to read and very, very difficult to understand. The technology is changing all the time. 
And it is much better to take the amount of money you would have spent on one experiment, divide it into 10, give each part to a young, agile, inventive person, hoping that you've got them on your staff. Of those 10 bits of money that you hand out for an experiment, seven will almost certainly fail. Of the remaining three, two will probably fail a bit further down the line. But if you get one really good, strong idea that you can keep going with that, that works really well. And that's what the new startup businesses tend to do. They tend to experiment a lot. They turn over stuff. If something doesn't work, they kill it. On the Internet, it's very easy to kill an experiment. If, um, you know, if it doesn't work, you just drop it and it disappears. And that kind of agility established media businesses find, for quite understandable reasons, incredibly, incredibly hard to do. You mentioned finding somebody in the newsroom who is inventive and resourceful and creative, willing to take on an experiment with these new products. How will this affect, and you being at a journalism school, you know, you've seen how, how it affects how we train young journalists. How do you think and how do you see this affecting um, the hiring practices of, of those journalism companies who are trying to be successful and trying to move forward? How will they... Um, change in who they hire and what kind of skills and traits they're looking for. One of the things I say to students in our, in our journalism school is that the thing that really distinguishes now in news media businesses from what it was like 30 years ago is that now you can enter, let's say, an established news business and you are going to be, or you could be, asked to innovate almost immediately. Well, 30 years ago, that was pretty unlikely. You would have to go on doing, you would start by doing things which everybody knew how to do. You were just learning your way through them. But these established businesses are absolutely desperate for innovation. We run a module in our in our postgraduate courses, which we call entrepreneurial journalism. And uh, what the students do is they get together in teams and they make, well, they, they think up an innovative idea and they've got to work out a business model for it. And then they do it, uh, they, they present it in front of a kind of jury of experienced uh, business managers and, and journalists. And some students say, look, this isn't journalism. I didn't come here to be a business student. But I say to them, look, sooner or later this will pay off for you because the likelihood that you will find yourself having to start an innovative project wherever you go to work are now much, much higher than they used to be. So... We're looking for slightly – people are looking nowadays for slightly less conventional people. They, they need to know that they've been properly trained as journalists. We're not throwing the whole business of training out of the window, not at all. But people with an extra inventive edge or who are prepared to think a little bit further, out, jump outside the box a little bit quicker, that's at a higher premium than it used to be. We are continuing to speak with George Brock, author of Out of Print, Newspapers, Journalism, and the Business of News in the Digital Age. And I don't want to spend too much time looking backward, but we addressed just a moment ago, a couple of questions ago, the idea of what the surviving, I hate to use the term legacy media, but the ones that are, are still you know, pushing on, how they are trying to move forward. The ones that are not able to move forward, it has to be more than simply they didn't lay off enough people. The ones who are being less successful, what kinds of lessons are they not picking up on and what sorts of tactics are they not employing? I think it, I think it very much depends on what your area of focus is. When I look at local media, 
one of the things I'm very struck by is they have stuck very much to the kind of news areas that were suitable for printing presses, delivery trucks, and the patterns established in the late 19th, usually during the 19th century. In other words, you have a town of, let's say, 60,000 to 100,000 people. It would have had, 20, 30 years ago, may still have an evening newspaper because that is the kind of, that's the sort of size of community where if you're printing an evening newspaper and you've got the right amount of advertising, your business should about come right. One of the things that happens when you're dealing with people who are wired to the internet and living their life on the internet in a lot of different ways every day, hardly without thinking about it, is everything can become very much more local. And I noticed that local journalism is having terrible difficulties adapting to this. They still think town-wide or county-wide, when actually they really ought to be thinking about tiny little villages within towns and building out from there. That's an example, perhaps, of uh, perspective difference. One of the things that bigger media and what we would call national media um, in Britain uh, are doing, I notice, is just going abroad. We have a newspaper in Britain. I'm sure you, I'm sure you know of it, The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Now, The Guardian has recently started editorial operations in both on quite a scale in the United States, based in New York, and in another English language market in Australia. And they are setting up, they've set up newsrooms in both places with quite a large number of people, including data journalists and uh, programmers and people uh, to start uh, developing uh, better local, local content there. And one of the reasons for that is that these operations need new ways of possibly building circulation, which in the end will bring them, will bring them revenue because they think they may have maxed out their possibilities in what were originally their home market. We're starting to, to drift a little bit toward the end, so I'm going to start skipping through topic to topic. Uh, the, the, the chapter on the, on the Levison judgment um, and then how once you know, the Levison judgment, you know, once the, the inquiry begins, you start seeing similar inquiries spreading to other continents, to, to Africa and to Australia. Um, and, and that was not a coincidence that you say. It, I mean, it was bound to happen. Why? The uh, Leveson Inquiry in Britain was triggered uh, by the immediate past cause of the phone hacking scandal, but there were parallel and broadly similar inquiries going on in other places, particularly in Australia, because the pressures on printed media and the rise of digital media have caused commercial strains in places and of course, people to wonder whether or not, and particularly in Australia, whether the, pl- the plurality laws, in other words, do the laws guarantee that enough different people can own newspapers, whether those legislations are working right. And in New Zealand, they, were just, they weren't asking those, quite those questions. They were just asking questions about whether or not digital affects the way the law works in communications in quite a lot of related ways. So digital pushes up a whole series of new dilemmas For example, in Britain, we have a developing privacy law. It's not actually called the privacy law, but that's how it works. And the privacy law is going to have to be rewritten sooner or later simply because um, it was written, the current version was written long before Twitter, uh, lightweight video cameras, people were starting to put cameras on drones, 
and so on. All of that is going to change uh, ideas about privacy, and it's certainly going to change laws about privacy. So you have very, very rapid pressures, uh, cycles of pressure and change happening in a whole number of areas. Right, and then uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't go back as well. You talked about the idea of, of experimenting and failure and finding people in the newsroom who are innovative. Um, in this great chapter, Throwing Spaghetti uh, at the Wall, you talk about having journalistic moments and why error is good. Um, and, and I think there are a lot who would agree with you. Um, but how, when, when with you know advertising being as fragile as it is, um, at least you know on certain sides of it, um, how can a newsroom brace for the economic impact of a failure when um, you know when, when layoffs are happening and when it's just such a volatile time? It, it, it's a very good question, and people who are as busy as people tend to be in newsrooms find it extraordinarily difficult to do. But that's why, in the end, I think what we're going to see is that bravery is going to be rewarded where publishers and editors who have said, despite the fact that we're losing jobs, despite the fact that we're under pressure, despite the fact that we're facing all the difficulties we're facing, we're going to detail a number of people and we're going to allocate resources to experiment. And we know in advance that although we will try for the highest quality experiments we can get, some of these experiments will fail because that's in the nature of these experiments – But the fact is that if we don't do these experiments and if we don't put the most talented people in those schemes, we won't eventually survive. We will just go on shrinking until until there's nothing left. And people will argue endlessly about what are the right schemes to have and what is quality and not quality in experiments. But it is the – if you look at the history of how journalism developed up to, say, the era of the internet – other than a historically very unusual period in the late 20th century when advertising income was so rich that nobody really had to worry about this, experimentation was what kept people alive and kept turning the corner and going over the hill and surviving. Experiments were what made it move. If five years from now, if, you know, if your publisher came back to you and said, you know, it's, it's book has done well, but to put out another edition to it, we'd like you to add a new chapter. No one really knows for sure, but if you could just maybe look ahead, say five years from now, what kind of what do you think the new chapter might be? Well, I think I, I, we can make a few predictions. I certainly can't make predictions about technology because everybody's predictions about technology have, have in the last ten or fifteen years have always been wrong. But I th- but I think I can safely say that some big daily printed newspapers in America and in Europe are going to start switching off their printed editions. It doesn't mean, mean to say that they will stop them dead, but you know they print them six days a week at the moment or seven, and they will go down to three or four and two and see whether how, how rarely they can print and still survive overall. That will be one development. Secondly, I think we're going to see big new high-tech companies Uh, like Facebook, Google, Yahoo, buying legacy media. We've we've already had an example of it in Bloomberg um, and in a a media insurgent, although although not a technology-based media insurgent, buying Business Week in the United States and and changing it very considerably for what it considers to be the new conditions of the market. And just the Washington Post bought by the owner of Amazon. And I was just about to say, Jeff Bezos of Amazon has uh, now bought uh, the Washington Post, and I think you're going to see 
other examples of that. So I think if I was writing a chapter in five years' time, I'd be looking back to how those kind of those two developments had had gone, and I think I'd probably be looking back to a a big struggle over the tension between verification and speed. You have a very interesting two developments going on at the moment. When you have um, the shooting in the mall in, in Nairobi in Kenya or you have the bomb at the Boston Marathon, what you've had is a vast amount of very bad, inaccurate information kind of zinging around and coming out on the web via sites in which anybody can more or less share anything. So you've got that tendency in one, and a lot of people understandably complaining about it. Secondly, you've also got a lot of attempts, particularly by a site called Storyful, to ensure that verification of what is happening is a more thorough, more disciplined, and more effective process. You won't be very surprised to hear me say, because I've got a long journalistic background, that I'm in favor of journalism doing verification because I think it's one of the important things that it does. But I think that kind of struggle to say not everything that is just fast or instant or visible is necessarily good because it's there quickly. It's actually worth knowing if you can rely on it. And I rather hope that the verifiers uh, win out and that if I was writing in five years' time, I'd be able to record that they had done good. So the book is done and it's out and it's important and it's interesting. What's next for you? What's on the horizon? Well, uh, I have to uh, return to teaching a whole new year of uh, postgraduate and undergraduate students. We've enrolled record numbers in our journalism school this year, I'm delighted to say, uh, particularly on the, post, on the postgraduate level. I'm, uh, I take part a lot in debates. I'll be in the States in a few weeks' time to take part in a debate about the future teaching, uh, the future teaching of journalism. And uh, I was talking about verification just now, and I was talking the other night to somebody who wants to do a study on new means in the digital news world of verification. So maybe that's going to be my next subject. Well, the book is Out of Print, Newspapers, Journalism, and the Business of News in the Digital Age. And the author is Professor George Brock of City University London. Professor, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And you've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Out of Print, written by George Brock, at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening.